Once again, it is my joy and honor and privilege to be back with you at the Advent. Thank you for welcoming me so warmly, and I look forward to uh, talking with many of you over lunch today. Well, we saw yesterday that Paul, in his great letter to the Romans, invites us to imagine God as a just judge. After decreeing death for idolatrous rebels who exchange the worship of the Creator for images of our fellow creatures, the judge turns in Romans 2 and he sets his sight on the moralists, the righteous ones, those who are convinced that they're good in and of themselves, they're God's favorites. If you want to reach for a Bible in the pew in front of you, you can turn to Romans 2. And in verses 3 and 4, we read this. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Paul sees that there's a certain sort of reader, a certain sort of hearer, who might be cheering along in Romans 1 as he denounces those people over there. And he wants to remind that reader, whoever he or she might be, that God the judge will not overlook their sin either. But notice how Paul makes this point in Romans 2. He mentions two realities. First, there is what Paul calls the judgment of God. We know from what he goes on to say in the next few verses that this is a future reality. Look at verse 6. God will repay according to each one's deeds. And then second, there's the reality of the forbearance and the patience of God. And this, it would seem, is a present reality. God is waiting patiently now, intending his kindness to, to lead these overconfident moralists to repentance. But one day, in the future, that patience of God will be at an end, and God will unveil his justice. And this is why the biblical scholar Gunter Bornkamm said that in Romans, quote, the two periods of salvation history are placed in contrast to each other as the time of patience and the time of the showing of righteousness. The former, the time of patience, will reach a closing point. And the latter, the time of the showing of God's justice, will arrive at the very end of history when God the judge takes his throne on the great day of the Lord. Well, so far, that's what we would have expected any faithful Jew to say. Paul, of course, was a faithful Jew. He'd been trained in the scriptures. And Israel's scriptures had been saying the same thing for centuries. God was a God of mercy and kindness, overlooking sin, granting people everywhere opportunity to grieve their sin and turn back to him. But one day, in the sight of all the nations, God would act climactically to condemn the wicked and to vindicate his chosen people the righteous, and to restore order and peace and wholeness to the world. But things aren't so simple as we read on in Romans. Paul makes it clear that, yes, he still believes that God the judge will unveil his justice, and yet, very strangely, Paul seems to be pressing us toward a shocking conclusion, shocking if you're coming from the Old Testament. That longed-for future unveiling of God's righteousness has already happened. 
Look at how Paul puts this in the middle of Romans 3, verse 21. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. Notice those two opening words of verse 21. But now, this is the unexpected thing. Now, God has done what you've waited for him to do. Now, God has done what Israel's scriptures promised he would one day do. In fact, Paul goes even further. Now, in the present, God himself has done what Paul said in chapter 2, just a few verses earlier, God would do in the future. What does that mean? How is it that God has acted in the way that Paul predicted he would one day act in the future? Remember what he said in Romans 2. This is verses 6 through 10. Paul said, God will repay in the future according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. How is it that that scene of judgment, of eternal life given and divine wrath bestowed, has already happened? Paul's answer is this. It has happened on the hill of Calvary outside Jerusalem, on the cross of Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 3, verse 25. God, God the Father, put Christ Jesus forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. God did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, that word forbearance in Romans 3, that's exactly the same word that Paul used earlier in Romans 2, verse 4. It is, remember, what Borncom called the first period of salvation history, to be followed by the period of God's showing his righteousness. That second period, the, the period after the forbearance, the period in which God displays his righteousness, Paul wants us to know that that has now arrived. Because God has shown his righteousness, his justice, by putting his own son, Christ Jesus, forward to be the sacrifice that fulfills all those long centuries of expectation of the day of the Lord. I love the way one of the uh, Advent's previous Lenten preachers, John O. Linebaugh, has put this. He writes, Jesus' death is the end-time enactment of the future judgment. Jesus' death is the full achievement of the divine judgment. The future judgment that was referred to in Romans 2 occurs on the cross. The judgment that we saw announced yesterday in Romans 2 has now been enacted and achieved in Romans 3 in and through the death of Jesus. But now, Paul says... God's righteousness has been unveiled. Can you see why that great uh, nonconformist preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that those two words, but now, or as Paul tweaks them in, in Ephesians, but God, but now, but God, those two words are a kind of summary of the whole teaching of Paul. 
Lloyd-Jones says, these two words, but now, or but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel of Christ. But now, in the present, God in Christ has acted to bring about his long-awaited, long-expected end-time justice. Now, if you're feeling disoriented, I think many of Paul's first hearers were as well. What do you mean, Paul? That the future judgment has already occurred in the present. What in the world does that mean? And what do you mean that it's occurred through Jesus' death on the cross? This teaching of Paul that God's future justice had now broken into the present and broken into the present in the form of a shameful crucifixion required everybody that Paul was writing to to rethink everything they thought they knew about what justice was, what God's righteousness was. Rather than holding a universally public courtroom session, God hid his justice under the form of an ignominious death of a first century itinerant Jewish preacher. And rather than condemning sinners, as everyone expected, God condemned sin in the person of Christ. God in Christ willingly took on the judgment that should have been meted out to us. And rather than acquitting the righteous, as everyone expected, God gave righteousness to those who had none because there was not a single righteous person to be found. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God had to create righteousness where there was none. And he did that by justifying those who simply despaired of their own efforts and received and rested on Christ alone for salvation. So many of us in this room today, I think, are in our individual lives, in our communities, in our societies, we're waiting with bated breath for God's justice, aren't we? We keep thinking that the answer to the world's injustice is still a long way off. Some of us are waiting fearfully for that day. We're waiting for the sword to fall. We're tiptoeing through life, wondering when we're going to be found out, because we know we're sinners. We know that our time is running out. We know that justice will catch up with us eventually. Others of us are desperate for that day to come. We need some reassurance. Our consciences are hyperactive. Our thoughts go back and forth between accusing us and excusing us, as Paul says in Romans 2. And we need to hear some voice from outside our own heads that assures us that we're forgiven. And we all, I think, instinctively feel these are things we've got to go on waiting for. We don't have them yet. They're off on the horizon. And the strange thing about what Paul is pressing us to hear today is this. The sword of God's judgment, the great day of the Lord, has already come. That voice that we're longing to hear has already pronounced the forgiveness we've waited for. Our long period of waiting for God's justice is done. God the judge has already decided the case. We look around and say, where? I don't see that. And and God says, Paul says, there, in the cross. Look at the cross. On the cross, God judged sin. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. On the cross, that sword of justice that we've been looking for and waiting for fell on Christ. And on the cross, God announced the reconciliation of the world. 
God dispensed forgiveness to those who cry out for it. The cross, Paul says in Romans 3.26, was to prove at the present time, now, that God himself is righteous and that God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is why I think that great New Testament scholar Lou Martin used to say repeatedly that the key question that Paul's letters press us over and over again to answer is, what time is it? What time is it? And the answer Paul gives is this. It's the time in which the judge has already shown and decisively displayed his righteousness. And therefore, it's the time of the forgiveness and the redemption of sinners. When I was fresh out of college, I I started working for a Christian social agency in in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis, in a food pantry. And one of my jobs at this agency was to lead a Bible study at a men's rehab facility just down the street in the neighborhood. And I was in my early 20s at the time. I was very wet behind the ears. And in many ways, I I was learning about how the world works for the first time. And here I was trying to explain the Bible, trying to talk about Jesus, trying to talk about the gospel to a group of men who as they say, have been around the block. Many of them were trying to land a job after being incarcerated. All of them were trying to figure out a new life uh, of sobriety, self-control. And I remember walking down that inner city street uh, into the rehab facility week after week, wondering if I had anything to say to these men that would be helpful at all. And I remember one conversation in particular. It's, It's very much etched on my memory. There was a new guy who showed up one week. He he had just been released from prison, and he showed a real interest in Jesus and the Bible. And I was very excited to talk about the Bible with him. I was on cloud nine, and I suggested that he might want to pray and ask Jesus for forgiveness and for new life. And I'll never forget what he said to me in response. He said this, I'm planning to do that. But first, I'm going to take six months and prove to myself and my family that I can stay clean, that I can hold down a job, that I can get my life back on track. And then, once I've gotten back some of my self-respect that I lost in prison, I'll feel better about asking Jesus into my life. But until then, I don't want to invite him into this mess. I don't want to disappoint him. And as soon as he said that to me, the words of the hymn immediately popped into my mind. You guys know it. Come. Ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. I think the mistake that that man made that day was giving the wrong answer to Paul's question, what time is it? The wrong answer to that question is, it's not time yet for salvation. It's not time for God's forgiveness yet. It's not time for me to come to Christ and take the free gift of righteousness because I'm not better yet. I'm not fit yet. I need to tarry a bit until I'm better and keep on dreaming of when I can be fitter for God's grace. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is this, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. 
Friends, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this is the sum total, this is the whole of the gospel of Christ. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, the redemption of God in Christ has now been disclosed. We don't have to wait for it any longer. We don't have to try to make ourselves ready for it. We don't have to try to prepare for it. We don't have to try to become fit for it. Now is the time of salvation. So let's not tarry, as the hymn says, in receiving it. Let's not dream of some future far-off horizon when we can get our act together and prepare for it. Let's realize that right now, today, this hour, in the present, but now, as Paul says, now is the time of God's righteousness. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.